We met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of many things, not the least of which is prayer. We do have a prayer list to my left. Feel free to get you a copy, uh, keep it updated, add to the list as the case may be, and delete again as needed. <clears throat> now let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll do silent prayer as we have been doing most recently. You think about what you need to lift to the Lord and uh, let him have it, so to speak. And uh, as the scripture clearly says, he's going to get the perfect prayer because of the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, he'll have a perfect plan for the perfect prayer, even though we often ask amiss, again, as the scripture says. So <clears throat> let's go to the Lord in silent prayer, and then I will close. Tommy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, by way of announcements, we are going to have on Wednesday our uh, prayer meeting at 6.30, followed by a 7 o'clock Bible study, continuing in the book of John. So feel free to join us if you so choose. So Kenneth, if you would come and let's have congregational singing.
Be seated. All right, we're going to look now at another aspect of worship called giving. And I'm not going to put the chart on the board. You've seen it so many times before. But I do want to make two points with reference to giving. Number one, it is an act of worship. And number two, we have in two particular chapters in the New Testament, instruction with reference to giving. Plus, we have a doctrine of giving on the Internet uh, under Pastor Mary's study books. But uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, 12, it says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Therefore, I assume that means that if you want to give, you gave. So we'll have a moment of silent prayer, and you can think about giving. If you want to give, you gave. Then in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says, Every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, because God loves a cheerful giver. So uh, if you can be a cheerful giver, then you have a plate here uh, on the front row, and actually two, and then you have one at the back. Feel free at the end of the service to uh, seek out the plate and exercise your your choice, your volition. All right, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to ask a blessing on both the gift and the giver. And then uh, I'm going to ask God's blessing on the rest of our service. So, Tommy, if you would, please, let us pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of giving. Now, I would ask a very special blessing upon both the gift and the giver, and that you would guide and direct us throughout the rest of this service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Ken, how about coming and leading us in another song? Hymn number 415, let's stand and sing all three verses.
Amen. All right, Ken. Thank you very much. All right, last week I completed the study of the third missionary journey. And when the clock told 11.30, we were reviewing Paul's reversionism. So uh, that we shall do. And I'm going to turn on the chart that tells us about the third missionary journey because it is at the end of the third missionary journey that uh, uh, Paul is in full-scale reversionism as he returns to Jerusalem to meet with uh, James, the founder of the Judeo-Christian church there. And they uh, begin to put a plan together, which unfortunately is not what Paul had been teaching and teaching and teaching, which was get out from under the law. All right, before we begin uh, with this lesson, let's use First John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to worship in this church, in this country called the United States of America. Guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to review some of that learned, and then we'll pick up with new material on page two. Uh, so uh, here we go, if you will. All right, it was the will of God. Now, this is under the doctrine of Paul's reversionism, in which we had some, uh, if you will, uh, part of that study but uh, not much. So we'll have a brief review and then we'll get with new material again on page 2. Alright, it was the will of God that Paul's third missionary journey should go west into Spain. And uh, you'll find that in Romans 15.24 which we read and I briefly exegeted that verse. He was in Ephesus in about A.D. 58 and knew he was supposed to go to Spain, but he wanted to go to Jerusalem. And he makes a statement in Romans 15, 25 through 32 that he'll probably be coming by Rome and he will visit with the folks there, uh, which certainly gives indication that there was an act, an active church or churches in the city of Rome. And uh, this is... a uh, uh, been supported by church history uh, and also by certain statements that Paul has made when he says he's going to see them again, you know, he's going to see them. No evidence that Paul ever went uh, to Rome, if you will, but there's certainly evidence that John Mark went to Rome and sat down with Peter, who was in Rome, uh, and uh, learned uh, everything that... Uh, Peter would have him to know so he could write the book of Mark. So we have uh, certainly evidence then that there was an active church there. Plus, when Paul gets there after the long sea voyage, which we'll study, uh, and the, the, the shipwreck in the island of Melita, etc., when he does arrive, he stays at a villa, uh, and he's, uh, in essence... Uh, under what we might call house imprisonment. And there's a praetorian guard who's with him. And Paul makes the statement that the people in Rome uh, found it very interesting and helpful to see Paul walking down the streets of Rome with the praetorian guard, which uh, gave him uh, some uh, gave them some idea that everything's okay to be a Christian because there's Paul with the praetorian guard. And I have a doctrine of the Praetorian Guard on the internet that certainly tells us that they were the ones who determined who's going to be Caesar. So with that information, we can pretty well understand that there there was a a Christian group or groups in Rome. And Paul went there, of course, because he had, as we'll find out in the doctrine of the trials of Paul, which I put together a new doctrine of the trials of Paul on the internet. So... You can certainly go and see that, westbankbiblechurch.com, 
Pastor Merritt's study books, uh, The Trials of Paul. All right, now let's go on to point 1.1.1 in our lesson plan. I say also see Romans chapter 1 verse 10. It says, if by any means I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. So again, indicating, as does church history, that there were Christians in Rome, and they were functioning. And he was thinking, well, I'll just see you when I pass through on my way to Spain. Now, the problem is he doesn't go to Spain, but instead he goes to Jerusalem because he has this desire to preach to larger groups than he has been preaching to. And uh, this, of course, is uh, unfortunately for for uh, Paul is a reversionistic uh, plan that he and James decide to implement. And we will get to that. So Paul dearly desires the approbation of Jewish Christians at Jerusalem and finds exhilarating the thought of taking an offering from Gentiles to the much persecuted Judeo-Christians at Jerusalem. Now, we know previously he said he was going to send it, and he was going to send it by so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so accompanied by so-and-so. But instead, he's bringing the offering himself. And uh, we know that because in the conversations with James, James says, you have money, and you should pay the penance of several people who are in the temple. And uh, that, of course, is in flies in the face with what Paul has been preaching don't get under the law. Don't get under the law. Uh, and, and it's a sad situation, but nonetheless, it's also a teaching situation for each and every one of us because when we go negative to the Word, we often uh, develop certain attitudes and ideas based upon what we think is Scripture uh, in error. All right, now let's go to... on page 2, it says, Paul elects to go east instead of west into Macedonia. His trip may have been hurried, who knows, supposition on my part, uh, hurried by the riot in Ephesus of the silversmiths over the making of the statuary of Diana. All right, Paul does want to arrive in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. It is in the Jerusalem church he wants to preach and perhaps be recognized as one of the early leaders of the Judeo-Christian faith, which certainly he was. But uh, like many, many uh, pastors, many, many evangelists, uh, Paul was a great example of uh, how sometimes uh, you may have the capability and you may be doing a good job, but you don't get a response from those who you're teaching or are are, uh, witnessing to. All right, uh, because certainly Paul was rejected by many of the the churches that he even founded, like particularly the church at Corinth. All right, this from a man, that is Paul, who has warned his congregations to avoid the Mosaic Law with his evil feast days. So see the doctrine of the Mosaic Law again under Pastor Merritt's study books. And also the book of Galatians, which I have taught previously, uh, for additional information concerning Paul's earlier teachings of avoiding the legalism taught by many Judeo-Christian church teachers. All right, the driving force behind the reversionism seems to be, and this again is conjecture on my part, a desire to make him feel good. It would seem his old sin nature needed the recognition of people like James, Peter, John, etc. Alright, Paul, recall, has not had the success of those apostles working in Jerusalem. And Paul's teaching had many of the elders in the very large Judeo-Christian church in Jerusalem upset. Upset because he was teaching, don't get under the Mosaic Law. Uh, It was incapable of providing salvation, and it's incapable of providing spirituality. And that's basically the entire book of Galatians. If you remember those two verses uh, found in the second chapter, actually the end of the second chapter, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, 
I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Alright, so this unpopularity of Paul seems to be very troublesome to the great apostle. However, he is, unfortunately, willing to water down the gospel for the sake, I think, of the approbation of his Jewish colleagues. And I think this is quite clear in Acts chapter 21, verses 28 through 24. So since Paul is being urged to join several men waiting in the wings of the temple to take a vow, I want to give you a quick point or two about vows. Alright? Vows were quite common and are even mentioned twice in the New Testament. Acts 18.18 And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sincrea, a seaport on the east side of the Isthmus, for he had a vow. So here he is taking a vow, and... Uh, Part of the vow was after so many days you would have your head hair cut off. Then you would take the hair into the temple and burn it as part of uh, the Mosaic law. All right, Paul stayed, secondly, Paul stayed in Corinth an indefinite period of time. Certainly, Scripture says many days before deciding to go to Jerusalem. Thirdly, before leaving Corinth, he assumed a Nazarite vow. You can see the Nazarite vow described in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, which was an Old Testament act of thanksgiving and dedication to God. Now, during the period of the vow, the devotee allowed his hair to grow uncut, and at the end of the period, he would cut his hair. During this period, uh, he did not or was not to have sex, drink wine, or eat grapes, or defile himself with the dead, nor cut his hair. Even he was not to go to a funeral, let's say of a parent or a member of the family, because he would be getting near a dead body. So that was part of the law. All right, let me read you number 6, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and then drop down to 18, and you'll get the gist of law-keeping and vow-keeping. Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, when either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink all the days of the vow of his separation. There shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. He shall not make himself unclean for his father, or for his mother, or for his brother, or his sister, when they die, because the consecration of his God is upon his head. All thirty days of his separation he is holy unto the Lord. Now verse 18. And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall take the hair of the head of his separation, and put it in the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. You'll notice he didn't do that before the temple, but rather he did it before a a building, probably a synagogue there in the Corinth. So it is significant that while Paul steadfastly refused to permit the law to be imposed on Gentiles, he himself as a Jew uh, continued to practice many of its demands. All right, Paul, it seemed, was at time as times, I should say, as stubborn and reversionistic as some of his Jewish adversaries. Jesus, you may remember, said, the law and the prophets were until John, and that was John the Baptist. But now the kingdom of God is preached, and every man pressed unto it. As he, of course, offered his kingdom to Israel for them to accept, which they did not accept. It's kind of like the Mosaic Law. He says, you are going to get the promised land if you'll do this, and if you'll do that, and if you won't do this, and you don't do that, etc. Uh, and because they violated uh, all the 
things you're supposed to do and not do, they won't get the land until Christ comes back at the second advent. All right, it's important for us to understand we're under the perfect law of liberty. And we need to stare into it and follow it. And that's, of course, the New Testament and the grace teachings found in the New Testament. Notice James 1.25, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So as when Paul came to Sincrea, that's the eastern port of Corinth on his way to Syria and Palestine, uh, the time of his vow elapsed and therefore he cut his hair and he was not at the temple to be able to fulfill completely what the scripture said. All right, James and the Jerusalem elders realized something must be done to show the Jews that Paul was still a good Jew. There were four Jews who had taken a Nazarite vow and they had apparently incurred they had uh, uh, certainly uh, incurred some kind of defilement, as we have read several things they were not to do. And that put them in a position of ceremonially, being ceremonially impure or unclean. So after seven days, they would shave their head and offer certain sacrifices of purification. All right, the elders suggested to Paul, and James, of course, that he definitely, he, he should identify himself with these four and practice the common Jewish custom of paying the expenses for the sacrifices. And this, hopefully, would prove to the Jewish uh, people there that Paul himself accepted the Jewish customs. So he was having trouble with Christians who were Christian Jews in the several churches that were there. And James, of course, the half-brother of Jesus, was responsible for these churches. Uh, And uh, this would... uh, Help them understand that Paul was still a good Jew, though a Christian. So Paul did this dastardly deed, and as a result received from the Lord severe discipline resulting from his being tried and incarcerated for some six years. Three years in Caesarea and three years in Rome. And it was during that time that God said, Okay, buddy, you know, you're not fulfilling what I told you to do, which is you're the you're the Gentile uh, apostle, you're the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter is the apostle to the Jew, and you're not to be getting under the law. You're you're to continue to preach your grace ministry, even though it wasn't popular. And this is difficult for a lot of pastors. They will distort the gospel in order to be popular, and uh, we see it uh, repeatedly, uh, both on television and in perhaps person. Uh, depending upon where where you might find yourself. All right, now let's look at Paul and approbation. Approbation, of course, meaning that which he's doing in order to uh, make himself feel good and uh, gain the approval of other people. All right, Paul's desire, point one. Paul and approbation. Paul's desire for approbation is understandable, though evil. For after all, Paul has been ministering to the Gentiles in Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia, etc., and suffering greatly from primarily Jews. His crowds are small, and yet he was the greatest of all Bible teachers. So it doesn't matter how good a Bible teacher you are, or evangelist you are, uh, you're not always going to be, quote, successful in terms of numbers. And, of course, you should not let that deter you in any way, though it is a natural uh, reaction uh, to humanity, if you will. All right, you could in the flesh certainly empathize with the poor man, that is Paul, but for one salient fact, God made clear to Paul that he did not want him to go to Jerusalem. So not only did he have the general... uh, if you will, order or instruction to get out from under, you know, don't get under the law. Get out from under that law. But he also is told specifically, don't go to Jerusalem. And we'll see that in a moment. 
So Jerusalem was a very evil church full of Christian Jews who were lovers of the law and the pleasure of big-time liturgical worship. Paul, however, was given a ministry of hard-nosed Bible teaching with small crowds of people interested in the mind of Christ and what it has to say. For many Christians then and now, what God's Word has to say is not so very important. Alright, now, God communicates His will to Paul. In other words, not only did he have the general statement that you're not to get under the law, and don't be tempted in that regard, but uh, specifically, and here we go, Acts 21.3, After sighting Cyprus and passing on the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, that would be in Lebanon, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So they had directions from the Holy Spirit, and they told Paul, Don't go to Jerusalem. Now let's go to Acts 21, 7. Then we'll drop down to 10, reading all the way through verse 18. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we got, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Now dropping down to verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And by the way, we do have a doctrine of Agabus on the internet under Pastor Mary's study book. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt, because that was Paul's belt that he had, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now when we heard this, says verse 12, and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. In verse 15, After this we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. You always speak of going up to Jerusalem when you go to Jerusalem because that's the high ground. All right, some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. He probably uh, got his message and teaching from that alternative missionary effort on the part of Barnabas and, again, his nephew, uh, John Mark. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. So again, that's where we will get the decision uh, to go into the temple and pay the penance, if you will, of several men who were closing out their vow. Alright, Paul chooses his very own will over God's will, and the result is discipline from the Lord. Again, a six-year prison sentence, three in Caesarea and three in Rome. Now then, let's take a look at the trials of Paul. The scriptures are copious, if you will, uh, with reference to the various trials. And we'll cut some of the, the scriptures short, but get the meaning, of course. So here we go. And we do have a doctor of the trials of Paul on the internet now. Alright, after the third missionary journey, Paul returns to Jerusalem in hopes of gaining access to the hearts and minds of the many Jewish converts living in the city. Paul spends several days in the temple participating in a purification rite, the purpose of which was to assure his Jewish brethren that he is not a heretic. All right, the Jews at Jerusalem are, however, implacable and outraged, thinking that Paul had taught the Jews uh, of Asia Minor to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to Jewish customs, uh, which, of course, was not literally true, but in terms of making it a ritual, it is true. He he taught them again and again. Uh, You know, it's okay to perform circumcision, but remember, circumcision does nothing. And uh, we have a doctrine of circumcision, again, on the internet under Pastor Merritt's study books. 
All right, certain Jews from Asia Minor traveled to Jerusalem where they spread spacious rumors concerning Paul, even alleging he had desecrated the temple by bringing his Gentile friends inside. And, of course, he did not do that. Uh, he didn't bring any Gentiles into the temple, but it was alleged that he did, and the rumor spread, and therefore uh, more folks were against him. Notice Acts 21.21, 21, and they are informed, They are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among you, the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Well, an angry mob gathers outside the temple to confront Paul. In other words, the best laid plans of James and Paul sometimes go astray. And uh, they thought, well, because we are going to let Paul get under the law, get into the temple and pay the penance, people will love him and they'll listen to him. And Paul thought that. He thought, what a good gimmick. See, the church is full of gimmicks to get people in in order to uh, teach them. And, uh, of course, this is right on the steps of the temple. And it is there that he actually will be physically accosted. So Paul is rescued by a platoon of Roman soldiers. Acts 21, 31 through 36. And I'm going to read. While they were trying to kill him on the steps of the temple now. Remember, across the street from this temple was Fort Antonio. Antonio. And in addition to that... Uh, it's also called Mark Anthony Barracks. And uh, so they're able to see what's going on. But in this particular case, they could probably not only see, but also hear what was going on. So they were trying to kill him. News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers... They stopped beating Paul. All right, the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked, that is say the commander, asked uh, who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks for Paul's safety. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. All right, Paul's first defense, therefore, is before an unruly mob, first on the steps of the temple and later from the steps of Fort Antonia. Paul is taken for an earlier Egyptian heretic. In other words, the the soldiers looked at him and said, aren't you that Egyptian who led some people out in the desert as a false teacher? Uh, Acts twenty one thirty eight through 40, and I'll read. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt, a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, which of course is also called Hebraic, which was the language of the street, uh, and it was a combination of both uh, the Hebrew and uh, other languages, uh, not the least of which is uh, what we, we call today, again, uh, street language. In other words, uh, uh, that he was doing, and they kind of liked that, you know, because it had a little Hebrew, Hebrew, you know, tone to it. All right, so Paul witnesses to the angry gathering by telling of his conversion experience. So he, again, uh, is back in their favor, but only for a very short time. All this moving toward his trials, by the way. This is uh, information in advance of the trial and what he will be tried for, if you will. Disturbing the peace, in other words. So when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, uh, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, 
but brought up in this city under Gamaliel, very uh, well-known teacher and, and well-reported of. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way, that is Christianity, to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison, as also the high priests and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. And of course, you know, it was on that road that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ and became a a full-fledged believer. At this point in time, he's a he's a man trying to kill anyone who's a Christian. All right, and remember he held the coat of Stephen when Stephen was stoned. So about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? His name having not been changed at this point to Paul. Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. And then verse 10, what shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And you know it is after that that he went out into Arabia and was taught by God and the Holy Spirit for the greater part of three years. All right, it seems well until everything's going pretty good, you know, and he tells all these Jews what we just read. However, he's about to reach his his uh, downfall. All right, all seems well until he mentions he took the gospel to the Gentiles. Then the Jews go berserk. Acts twenty two twenty two. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. So the gimmick between, again, Paul and James has failed. So Paul is saved from the crowd by the Roman soldiers who take him into custody. Paul declares himself a Roman citizen and the centurion becomes concerned that he has bound a Roman without examination or just cause. Acts 22, 25-29 As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen, so he's going to pass it up, uh, up the line, if you will. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Now verse 29. Those who are about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. All right, Roman citizenship could be obtained by birth from parents who were Roman citizens, or by purchase with money, or as a gift from the Roman government. After the abuse, Paul did not look like a Roman citizen. Though I'm sure after having been beaten and having been pushed around, he looked like a street person. All right, the Roman tribune accordingly assumed Paul had acquired his citizenship rather cheaply. Paul replied that he did not buy citizenship, but was born of parents who were already citizens. We do not know how his parents became citizens, uh, but it is usually supposed that citizenship was given them 
as a reward for some service rendered to an earlier Roman ruler. So Paul then is brought before the Sanhedrin. You remember that's the ruling body uh, that Rome had permitted to rule in uh, the province of Rome, if you uh, of uh, a province of Rome, which of course was headquartered in Jerusalem, uh, and he's going to appear now before this group of Jewish uh, jurors, if you will. So here we go. Acts 22.30, the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. In other words, they actually had their own police force and they were given the right to rule in the city as long as they... Of course, followed the rules and regulations that Rome provided. One of which was that they could not uh, uh, they could not uh, exercise capital punishment upon anyone. And there were other things they would not let them do, like, for example, riot. Rome did not put up riots and uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, street disorders in, in any way. All right, now after being told, he had reviled, and that's why, by the way, the, the soldiers were very interested in stopping what the Jews were doing to Paul on, on the temple steps. So after being told he had reviled the high priest, Paul apologizes and divides the Sanhedrin by bringing up the question of the resurrection. It is questionable if Paul did this because he did not recognize Ananias or whether Paul was, was being his sometimes can take or self. We don't really know what he did as far as Ananias is concerned, but whether or not he uh, pushed him or whether or not he just spoke evil to him, we're not real sure. But uh, certainly uh, he's going to uh, be struck for what he did. So it was enough of a, of a problem that uh, one of the guards is going to strike him for being disrespectful to Ananias who wasn't a very good guy, by the way. We'll see that here in a minute. So Paul began his defense before the Sanhedrin by claiming that he had acted in good conscience before God, not only in these affairs for which he was being accused, but for that matter, throughout his entire life. Uh, Now, Ananias was the high priest. From A.D. 48 to A.D. 58, he was reputedly a very greedy, insolent, overbearing man. Angered by this bold claim of Paul, he commanded some who stood near the apostle to strike him on the mouth. And there's much conjecture as to what Paul did in order to get struck on the mouth by one of the soldiers. But he was apparently disrespectful to Ananias, and so he wanted respect, and so he demanded somebody give him a good whack. All right, with indignant words, Paul now challenged this irregular conduct from a member of the Sanhedrin accusing those who claimed they were enforcing the law while actually violating the law themselves. He said, why did Wall suggest, he called him a whited wall, why did Wall suggest a tottering and dirty wall which has been disguised by a generous coat of whitewash? This meaning, the meaning, is that although he held a high position, Ananias was bound to come to grief. In fact, Ananias was assassinated some eight years later. So Paul decides to divide the Sanhedrin. This is not unusual for Paul to do this. He knows that the Sadducees were sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And he knew that the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. And Sanhedrin was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees. So he uses the technique of bringing up the resurrection to divide the Sanhedrin. So he decides that by letting it be known he was a Pharisee who was on trial because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. Acts 23, verses 6 through 7. And I'll read. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. 
When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. All right, the Jews were so divided that they became violent. Soon Paul's life was in jeopardy, so the Roman officer in charge, he ordered his men to take Paul into Fort Antonia. Acts 23.10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul was going to be torn to pieces. He ordered the troops, take him by force and bring him into the barracks. All right, the Lord visits and comforts Paul in a night vision. Naturally, Paul would be upset at this point in time, wondering why he's being treated so, uh, and he's going to get a vision from the Lord. So, and the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as though, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And I'm sure that was to Paul pleasant, but also a bit disconcerting. Uh, I'm going to go to Rome. Uh, well, I knew I was supposed to go to Rome, but I didn't go to Rome because I was going to go to Rome on my way again to Spain. And, of course, there were many, many Jews in Spain, Jews in, who came into the Holy Land from Spain, were called Sephardic, or for, for Sardine, if you will. Uh, and uh, they, they uh, are, are well known, if you will, are, but they're also, Spain is also known for, known for mistreating the Jews grossly. In fact, they'll kick out 70,000 at one time. All right, here we go. Paul is removed from Jerusalem under armed guard because a plot to kill Paul is discovered. Acts 23, verses 12 through 22. All right, now we're going to get uh, a little intrigue here. All right, I'm going to begin with verse 12. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. And more than 40 men were involved in this plot. I'm sure there were 40 hungry men later because they're not going to be able to do what they said they were going to do when they took the vow. Not eat or drink till we get this guy. So when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, here's how we know he had a sister. Here's how we know he had a nephew, if you will. Into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. And of course, that was just the guys. Uh, they want to kill him. They want to have access to him. And having him brought before the Sanhedrin would give them that access. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. So the commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't you tell anybody about this uh, that you've reported. All right, and as a result, Paul is taken to Caesarea. He's going to be leaving if you will, and you can see Cesare on this chart. Uh, I'll turn it on a minute. But it's down here, if you will, in this particular area. Uh, it was a port city, and uh, so he's being taken across over here. Uh, we don't see it on that chart. I thought we did, but uh, I needed you to see a light show anyway, and uh, so you'd come back next week. All right, now let's go on. Sorry. I know that wasn't funny. All right, again, Paul is taken to Caesarea. So he's taken, if you will, west uh, down to a port city. And uh, I'm going to read. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered him, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. So he's going to punt, if you will, and uh, send him to Caesarea where he will be tried again before Felix. 
And we will pick up there next week, the Lord willing, and the creek doesn't rise. Uh, and we will continue as he's going to be tried several times. And then finally he's going to be sent on his way to, uh, to Rome. But he has some very interesting things to say. He does a lot of witnessing, by the way, to the uh, uh, highfalutin folks, the jurists, if you will, uh, in Caesarea. All right, uh, let's dedicate the closing moments of our service to anyone who may be without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. Uh, we are Christians. And as Christians, we know we are saved because of the work of Christ on the cross. We also know that there may be people who are listening to us on the internet or the podcast who have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to make clear the gospel. And the gospel is good news. You, angelion in the Greek, is good news. And uh, uh, we should get it out very clearly uh, and without any obfuscation. And it all begins with the fact we're all sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you can tell God the Father, I am believing on God the Son, and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. Because the Scripture again tells us that Christ came unto His own, which would be Israel, but Israel refused Him. But His own received Him not, says the Scripture. But as many as did receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on His name. And it was totally by grace For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's rather simple and easy for us, as sinners, to become a member of God's forever family. Uh, And uh, it's simple for us because God wanted it that way. And of course, it's difficult for Him Easy for us and difficult for Him. Because He took all the sins of the world, past, present, and future, and poured them out on Christ. And that's why mankind is not judged based upon sin, but as uh, based upon turning a back to the grace of God again. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And now I'll pause and let you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study Your Word. Now I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in Your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.